Welcome to Church Words, where we look at some of the Bible's most important words and discover their meanings. And today, we're going to look at the word sanctification. Sanctifahuvaka? Yeah, never heard of that one. Well, it's actually a pretty important word for Christians. Well, what is it? Let's take a look. The word sanctify comes from a Latin word known as sanctus, which means holy. Holy? We already covered that word. Well, technically, you did, not me. But sanctification's definition is a little different than simply meaning holy. Sanctification means to make something or somebody holy. To make holy? What do you mean? Well, for instance, when someone believes in Jesus for the first time, God sanctifies that person, meaning he sets that person apart from the world to be holy. Every follower of Jesus has been sanctified by God, and they become God's children from that point onward. So, sanctification makes us different from the world. That's right. In John chapter 17, Jesus prayed this regarding his followers. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Jesus took the time to ask God the Father to set apart everyone who would follow him, in order for them to be and to accomplish all that God desired of them. Well, if I'm supposed to be sanctified, why do I still keep screwing up? Am I not a true Christian if I still sin? Now we're getting into the second form of sanctification. This form is known as progressive or experiential sanctification. This refers to the process that every Christian must go through during their life on earth. Throughout the New Testament, writers like Paul and Peter write about Christians needing to become spiritually mature. They both use the analogy of a baby who is unable to eat solid foods yet, but has to start out with milk. As they mature, they're able to eat more and more types of food that they previously couldn't before. And that sounds like it's going to take forever. Why can't I just become perfect the moment I accept Jesus? It's important to remember that when someone begins their journey with God, they're having to put their entire past of sin behind them and embrace their new, foreign one. That's going to take a lot of readjusting. While God gives us His Holy Spirit to resist temptations, God still gives us free will. He wants us to choose to love Him, and only we can make that decision. That makes sense. One thing is for certain, though. The more you put your old life to death and submit to the Holy Spirit, the more changes God will make in you. As long as we keep our eyes on Jesus Christ, we can be assured that He will make us more and more like Him day by day. Wow. I can't wait to see how God will change my life in the future. Sanctification is pretty cool. I'm just going to talk a little bit about sanctification on today, and I'll just let Pastor do the rest. Is that all right? Yeah. yeah. Amen. I promise you. What time is it? 1240-ish? 1140-ish? Uh, we'll, we'll get out by 12. Amen? Amen. So I won't hold you long on today. Amen. So just bear with me. I haven't been up here for a while. I'm going to just be myself on today, really. Amen. I like to give an honor to God who is first in my life. I like to give an honor to the angel of this house. Pastor Joel Moorfield Jr. Amen. And I'd like to give an honor, amen, to Lady Rachel Moorfield. Amen. amen. To the first family, to my wife, amen, amen and to my daughter. Amen. That sounds a little bit rehearsed, didn't it? That sounds a little bit from what we're used to, right? And if I can be honest, that was my idea of sanctification. Knowing the protocol, okay. knowing what to say, being proper, wearing a suit, being behind a podium. That's my idea 
or for a long time, that was my idea of sanctification. And just being in that realm or in that world, I mean, that's just what we all were used to. I don't want to say all of us, but for us who have been in the church setting, that was our idea of sanctification. And I'm not saying that that's not right. Disclaimer. I'm not saying it's wrong to wear a suit. I'm not saying it's wrong to have protocol. I'm not saying it's wrong to be proper. But I'm saying that all that we did, we emphasized the outward appearance. We emphasized what we said. We emphasized what we did. And we didn't emphasize what was on the heart because anybody can get up here and do exactly what I just did, have the proper form, have the proper punctuation, say things, wear this suit. And I haven't worn a suit in so long. I have, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of a, kind of does hold you back, doesn't it? And so I just want to be myself just a little bit. And that was my idea of sanctification. Being able to do it that way. But what I learned, sanctification, what sanctification really is, and as we learned with the video and as we learned last week, sanctification is being set aside. God taking out that, that unclean part of you and setting you aside and then either to be viewed or to be used. Can I give you my analogy of sanctification now? All right, so how many of us have seen a painting? We see paintings right now, right? Does anybody know how a painting is made? How it's actually formed? A painting is made by just taking four pieces of wood. You get the framing of it. You put it together. It doesn't have to be a rectangle. It doesn't have to be a square. It could be whatever shape you want to make. But usually you get wood or something to frame it together. And then what you do is you stretch the canvas around it and you kind of put it together. And that's the same thing that God did with us. We became the framework of God's art. God put us together, he put us all of these organs, he put these bones in, in us and everything, and then he put the skin around us and he wrapped us, just like we see that a painting is done. Now the next step of a painting is what they do is they apply this white thing, or this white pigment, it's called gesso. And what it does is it cleans up the canvas. It makes it look nice and pretty. And if I can analogize that, that's the same thing that Christ did for us. Yeah. We were in our sin, we were in our ways, and Christ came and he washed us white and he made us look good. Yeah. Now the next step, what you do is you would take that picture or that frame that was done and you would send it out. And what an artist would do is they would put their painting on it. They would put whatever medium they wanted, they would put whatever drawing they wanted, whatever they would put on it, they would put it on there. But when they made a mistake, depending on what type of artwork they had, depending on what type of paint they used, or depending on what type of medium they used, there will always be this agent. There will always be this thing that they can use to erase it, whatever spot they want to take out, and they would remove that spot. And that's the same thing that God did with us through Christ's blood. Amen. We came in this world, we were born in iniquity, shaping in, or we were shaping in sin, born in iniquity. And we made mistakes. We walk around. We're not perfect. But what God did was he used that blood of Jesus and he applied it to our lives. So there are some things that we may have went through. There are some ugly parts that we've been in our lives. But what God uses is that agent, that blood of Jesus. And he used it to wipe us clean. He used it to wipe us white again. And if I could take that just a little bit further. When you study a painting, what makes a painting more valuable than another painting? 
it's usually the type of artist, it's usually the name that's on it. So you can look at one of the ugliest painters in the world, uh, work-wise, to me, is Pablo Picasso. It's so strange. He has so many different points of view, so many different, he has 2D, 3D in it, so many different perspectives in it, all meshed into one. Now, to some people that might look pretty, but for me, that's just ugly. And if I was to do that, if Royce was to make an exact replica of Pablo Picasso's artwork and I would put my name on it, it would not be anywhere as valuable as Pablo Picasso's because of his name. And that's the same way we are in this world. We are God's artwork. We are the frame of God's art. And when God puts his name on us, that's when we become valuable. That's when we become something to this world. That's when we become that valuable piece and God hangs us up. And that's what sanctification is. God sets us aside. He puts his name on us and we are put up, usually to be viewed or to be used. And in this case, is to be viewed. So then, this is what Paul is actually speaking of when we go into the book of Romans. I said all of that just to give you a type of introductional or a type of formal uh, understanding of sanctification. And that's what Paul does in Romans 1 through 10. He gives them the doctrine. He gives them the form of it. He gives them the understanding of sanctification. And then, and then in chapter 11, he begins to tell us, he's talking to the Romans, but this is for all of us, how we are grafted into the family of God. Because even though that the, the first followers of God, they fell off, we become that branch that fell off and we have taken root with that in that as that branch that fell off and we become grafted into the family of God and then we get to Romans 12 said all that to say just just to get here and Paul turns from a preacher you know giving doctrine and giving everything to a friend and a teacher Paul actually tells us in Romans 12 how to be sanctified or how to be holy, but I'm going I'm to I'm, I'm, I'm stick with sanctification. He tells us how to be sanctified. If I give you an understanding, it's like when you get a job. You have the posting. The posting says, okay, these are your duties. These are the qualifications that you must meet. Through God or through Christ, we've met that qualification. Now you're on the job, and they give you training and tell you, okay, well, this is how you fulfill the duty. And that's what Paul is doing here. You've got the job, you fulfilled the requirements, now in Romans 12, this is how, or this is what you need to do to keep the job, or this is what you need to do to, to fulfill this. And he says, I beseech you, brethren, I beseech you therefore, brethren, I'm reading a King James Version, you know, all I have is King James, you know, Bibles at my house, so that's all I was able to study, and so it might be NIV here. But I also, they, they link up together. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable, perfect will of God. So Paul comes and he goes from preacher to teacher to confident to friend and he says, brethren, he makes a connection. He says, I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. What is Paul talking about when he says, present yourselves 
as a living sacrifice. The first question I would have to ask, and when I study, I always ask questions. And, you know, as I was growing up, where I, I was told, never question what God does. And I find that that's hard to do because you have to gain a relationship with God. So there are questions that you have to ask. Just like when you're in a relationship with someone else or you even have a friendship, you ask questions. You know, you bounce things back off each other so you can understand their history, you know, how to approach that person, you know, the do's and the don'ts. And it's the same thing with God. So I, I question a lot of things. So I'm asking, what does Paul mean when he says a living sacrifice? And the question that I came to is, what is a sacrifice? So you have to study sacrifice, right? When was the first sacrifice done in the Bible? Does anybody know? Jesus with Adam and Eve. Say it again. Genesis. Genesis? Genesis. What part of Genesis? When he killed the animal. Okay. Anybody else? I'm just I'm just being myself. I'm trying to make it interactive. I know some people are they were a victim of the daylight savings time, so <laughs> I'm just gonna be interactive on today. So the first one was when? When an animal was sacrificed to clothe Adam and Eve, okay. Was it an animal that was sacrificed? Um, I mean, it does say God made them coats of skin. Yeah, it doesn't say what animal. Okay. Uh, most people would say what? With Cain and Abel? Because I don't ever remember Adam sacrificing. The Bible didn't say that Adam ever sacrificed. No. But the mo most people would say that Cain and Abel were the first people to sacrifice. And I got to challenge you. Was it a sacrifice then? When you read the Bible, it says that there was an offering. That it was an offering. So Cain and Abel, they offered. We don't hear anything else. Abraham, did Abraham sacrifice? He tried to sacrifice Isaac. But did it say sacrifice or did it say offer? It said offer. Abraham, he laid out his offering to God in the desert, and then he went out and he fought all the buzzards and everything that was trying to take his offering. And I know you're looking at me, why are we arguing semantics, offering, sacrifice is the same thing? No. Offering and sacrifice aren't the same thing. Offering and sacrifice are sort of like sanctification to where it's the inward that matters rather than the outward. Offering was something that you did as a gift. It was a donation. It was something that you did out of the kindness of your heart. Sacrifice is something that you do because it's a requirement. So the difference between the two is one is you give it out of your heart. The other one is it's a requirement. If I could give you an example, it would be tithes and offering. It's, it's right there. The tithe is the requirement. You're supposed to give a tenth of what you make because it's a requirement. But the offering is that little bit extra that you can give out of the kindness of your heart to meet the need or if you just feel like giving it out of the kindness of your heart. So where is the first place that we actually find sacrifice in the Bible? Amen. And I have to ask these questions because pastor has me reading a book of uh, uh, systematic theology. So you have to connect everything and make sure you know what you're talking about. The first place you see sacrifice in the Bible is with Jacob. Jacob has just left Laban. He's not running, but he's just leaving. And that can be found in, I believe, Genesis 31. 
He's just left Laban. He took his wife. He took his kids. He took all the things that belonged to him, all of his flock, all of his servants, everything. But the Bible says that Rachel, his wife, took the idols of her father Laban. So Laban is furious. Laban is mad. Laban runs after Jacob. And Laban says, uh, you have taken my idols. You, what cause have you done this? Then he goes on his whole spiel. You took my daughters. You took my flock. You took my servants. You took everything. None of this belongs to you. And they're fighting back and forth. And lo and behold, Jacob does something that we see in the Bible. If anybody has taken anything out of your house, let that person die. Not knowing that his wife, Rachel, took it. So when Laban and, and, and uh, Jacob says, you can search my camp, you can search everything, you can search anywhere you want. So Laban comes to Rachel and he says, let me look for my idols. She's, and she's sitting on them and she said, well, I can't get up because it's the custom of the women. She's trying to cover everything up. It's the custom of women. And, um, you know, it, it's going on at that time. We all know what the custom of women are. So Jacob realizes that he and Laban are fighting. And in order just to squash this thing, he realizes that there must be a separation. And he says, just in case someone in this house did have it, I did require a life for it. I did say you can take a life. So what we're going to do is we're going to sacrifice a lamb. And when we sacrifice that lamb, it became a requirement because a life has been required based on what Jacob has said. The second time we see sacrifice in the Bible is in Genesis 46. Jacob again. Jacob is the only person that's like requiring lives. Jacob, Jacob, Jacob has some issues. So Jacob has just found out in the, in the latter end of his life that Joseph is alive. And the Bible says when he heard that Joseph is alive, his spirit revived because Jacob at that time, being called Israel, he was preparing himself to die because he's, he's lived a long life. He's become a man of old age. He was going to bless his sons. But when he heard that Joseph was alive, after he thought he was dead, he was like, there must be a life required because I thought my son was dead and I was going to die. So let me give a life. And at, immediately after that, you see that Jacob is revived and he goes to see Joseph. So sacrifice was something that was required. And Jacob was the only person that did it in sacrifice. Everybody else just did an offering. They did it out of the kindness of their heart. But the problem, and we'll, we'll get to that later, but everybody did it out of the kindness of their heart, everybody did it as something extra. When Cain and Abel came to God, they did it as something extra. Even though God didn't accept Cain's, they, he did it, he was supposed to do out of the kindness of his heart. But we all know that Cain had, he didn't give it out of the kindness of his heart, his countenance was fallen. But Abel did it out of the, count, the kindness of his heart. Everybody from Abel to Jacob or Abel to Isaac always gave an offering to God as a thank you or out of the kindness of their heart. And that's where we should be. We shouldn't be stuck by a requirement of doing things that, you know, that we think we should do because everything isn't always what the outward appearance looks like. And I think that's what everybody gets stuck on. They get stuck on doing that outward appearance. So we sacrifice. We don't sacrifice just to do it out of the kindness of our heart. We sacrifice because other people are looking. Oh, I give my tithes. Oh, I do what I'm supposed to do. Oh, I live holy. Oh, I can say the right words. Oh, I know how to do this. Oh, I know how to do that. I wear a suit every day. I'm holy. I know how to do this. This is my sacrifice to God. Is it really? Or are you just doing it for show? Are you really doing it because you love God? Or are you doing it because you know protocol? Are you doing it because you love God? Or are you doing it because you know people are looking and you know you have to come right? 
That's the difference between offering, thank you, and sacrifice. So, sacrifice became something that God mandated. Jacob has already instituted it, so God says, oh, that's a good and, and I'm just paraphrasing. That's a good idea. Israel, or, the, or my people that I have set aside, have forgotten how to do things from the kindness of their heart. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to make it a mandate so that they can remember this as a perpetual, you know, something that goes on and on and on. They, they do this so they won't forget me. So God says, I'm a mandate sacrifice, and you have to do this once a year. You have to do this whenever I ordain you to do it. You have to do this sacrifice. And the, the sacrifice that most people think of is the uh, sin offering or the atonement. And what that is is once a year, the priest goes in on behalf of Israel, and everybody in Israel lays their hands on a goat, and it is slain. That hand laying on the goat is them putting their sin on the goat. So all that sin that Israel has done for that past year is slain, and that's the requirement that God has for the atonement. And that's what we mostly identify with is the atonement. Now, there are other ones. There are uh, heave offerings and all of that, but those became mandate. So when we study offering, the next question I had, or uh, sacrifice, the next question I had, like I said, I, I questioned a lot of things. And I remember this question came up in Sunday school. Uh, I always had this question. Why, if the children of Israel don't believe that Christ is the Messiah, why, do, why don't they still do offerings? If they're supposed to live by the Bible, or the, or the Torah, I'm sorry, or the Pentateuch, why is it that they stop sacrifice? Why isn't that they don't still slay goats because they're, they're living by the law. They're, they're still under the law. They're still waiting for the Messiah to come to redeem them. So why don't we see it? And the answer I got really was, okay, well, because of the timings. And it wasn't Brother Brian in Sunday school that gave me the answer. That's just what I came up, you know, with my own answer. And the answer I came up with was, okay, well, it's because of times. You know, people don't really do that anymore. And as I read throughout the Bible the children of Israel were really stuck on doing their rituals. They were really stuck on doing what they, what they did. They still do the dwelling in the booths during Passover. They still do Passover. They still follow all of these rituals that they do. So why don't they still sacrifice? Well, I found out that when the temple was destroyed, the children of Israel had nowhere to go to sacrifice. And if you will turn with me, if you can go to Hosea 14, 1 and 2, just keep that up there. The children of Israel had nowhere to go to sacrifice. So in the book of, I believe it's Numbers chapter 12, God instituted Moses saying, when the children of Israel get to the place that they need to be or get to the place that I've shown them, when they get to the land of Canaan, when they get to the land flowing with milk and honey, they will do sacrifices and they will make a permanent dwelling and they can only go there to do their offerings and their sacrifices. That's the only place they can go. They can't go anywhere else. So if you are far abroad, you have to come from where you were, come all the way back to where the house of God was that was established in Israel and you have to do your, your, your sacrificing and your offerings there. Now, before that, prior to them coming out of Egypt, what they did was they would build altars anywhere and they would sacrifice there. But now it says, when you get to the established place, 
You will not be able to do any sacrifices. You will not be able to do any offerings anywhere else but where the house of God is. But we're in a conundrum because there is no house of God when the Babylonians come and they tear down uh, Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple is no longer there. So for 70 years, they have nowhere to sacrifice. But in the meantime, Hosea is praying to God in uh, chapter 13, and he's telling them, look, I know that, you know, your house, the, the, the house of God is uh, struck down. And he's, he's even one up in a prophecy. He says it's going to happen again when you rebuild the temple. It's going to get uh, destroyed again. So what he says in the book of Hosea, bear with me as I get there. In the 14th chapter, again, I'm reading from the King James Version. It says, O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. And he's saying this as they're in exile, when they have no place to go to sacrifice. Take your words and turn to the Lord. Take with you words and turn to the Lord. Say unto him, take away all iniquity. When they would sacrifice, that's what they were doing it for, to take away all iniquity. And receive us graciously. They were giving and they were giving to take away the iniquity so they would be redeemed. So we render the calves of our lips. Right here, I don't think it says calves, it says sacrifices. That word sacrifices actually means calves. So what they would do is they would sacrifice these animals when they would go to the house of the Lord. But because there was no house, what they did was they turned their words into the calves. So now because they can't sacrifice, what, they are, what, what they're going to do is they're going to take the words of their lips and they're going to use that as their sacrifices. So Israel or the children of Israel today don't sacrifice or do the things that they did back when you read it in the Bible is because they have no place to go. So at this time, the temple was destroyed. You know, 70 years later, they rebuilt it. Then it was destroyed again. So they went back to Hosea and they said, because we have no temple. And can you imagine from that time until now, they're still waiting for a temple to be rebuilt. They're still waiting for a central location for a house of God so they can actually go and actually offer their sacrifices. Can you imagine waiting that long? I thank God for Jesus. Can you imagine waiting that long to generation after generation bearing the sins of your father? Generation after generation still be caught in a curse? Generation after generation still being in this, in this den of iniquity? I couldn't imagine that. But because we had Jesus who became our calf, our sacrifice, our atonement, and he died on the cross for our sins, we no longer have to do that sacrifice. And it, and it doesn't become an outward appearance, it, or it, it doesn't become an outward show. It becomes an inward thing. Amen. And I'm not going to be long. Definitely not going to be long. I'm almost done, actually. So that's what he means by sacrifice. That's what the sacrifice is. Offering, remember, is doing it out of the kindness of your heart. Sacrifice is a requirement. We don't sacrifice now because, or the children of Israel don't sacrifice now because they're still waiting on the temple to be built. But Christ became our sacrifice. So we no longer, as the people of God, grafted into the family, no longer have to sacrifice with calves and animals, but we can sacrifice with the fruit of our lips, our praise, our worship. And not only that, Paul goes on to say, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Every time an animal was sacrificed, they had to be killed. They would be left dead on the altar. And they had no power, 
no ability, no nothing after that. But because we are coming as a living, the word living there means quickened. The word living there means ready and able. The word living there means life. We are the living sacrifice. So every time we're, we're, we're being viewed, we're being viewed as a living sacrifice. So we can still become that perpetual uh, insight that God has between the world and him. We are actually, when God puts himself in us, we are supposed to be sanctified. We're supposed to be set aside and people view us. Usually set something aside either to be used as a vessel or to be viewed. We become that artwork or that framework of God to be viewed. And that's what it means by being a living sacrifice. Something that can be seen not just once, not just be done once, but can be seen continuously. Amen. So that's what he mean by becoming a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable. Now, the word holy there doesn't necessarily mean what we think it means. It means to be pure and perfect. When most people think of the word perfect, what do they mean? Or what, what do they think? They think you got it all together. They think that you are the best of the best. They think that you do it all right. And the word perfect there doesn't mean you do everything right. The word perfect there means that you're just complete. If you study Job, Job was called a perfect man. Job wasn't perfect because he knew or had everything done right. Job was just a complete man. He was complete in his relationship with God. He was complete in his relationship with his family. He was just complete in what he did. It doesn't necessarily mean he was the best. Doesn't mean he was the strongest. It doesn't mean he was the, 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 the most holiest. All it means is he was complete. And that's what people look at us when, when we say we're Christians, they want us to be perfect as in we got everything right. But no, you need to be seen that you have adversity. You need to be seen that you do go through things. It's not that you're going through it, but it's how you handle it. And that's what the Bible means when it says you're be perfect. It means you have to be complete. Anything that's thrown your way, anything that you may go through, you handle it with the grace of God. You don't curse God at his back. And you even seen Job's personality in the Bible if you read that whole story of Job. Job had some issues, but it's the way Job handled it that made Job perfect and complete. Amen? Amen. Amen. And that word acceptable, if I could just give you just a little bit more, means you're in agreement or you're, you're, you're willing. So it says be a living sacrifice, complete and willing to do the will of God. Amen. And I'm going to the second verse, which is going to be a quick 10 minutes and we can get out of here, y'all. All right. Am I saying something? Are y'all getting anything? Amen. And it says, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, when you conform to something, and we learned this last week, you're taking what's on the outside and let it influence the inside. But when you're transforming, you're taking what's on the inside and let it influence the outside. So everything that's around you, if you're conforming, all of the past history, all of the poverty that you may see around you, all of the violence, if you let that get into you, you're conforming. But I know people who have grown up in those situations and they let what's in them, they let that love, they let that kindness, they let that Christ that's in them transform what's around them. Have you ever had that employee or that coworker that comes in every day and you know it's a stressful job, there are strenuous things going on, you know, you have drama over here, you have drama over there, 
but they have that joy, they have that happiness, and they don't let anything from the outside get into them. That's exactly what this scripture means. Don't allow anything that's on the outside influence the inside. And if I could give you an example of that, we can go to Numbers, the 13th chapter, beginning at the 30th verse. And I'll just read it from here. And they returned from spying out the land. And this is when Israel was about to go into the promise the first time. And God told them to spy out the land to see how it was. See if it was uh, ready. See if it was prepped. See if it was everything that the Lord had promised them. That's really why they went. And they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron. All the congregation. I believe we can go down just a little bit more because I will be reading this all day. Uh, we can go to the 30th verse. Yes. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. Next verse. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in there are men of great stature. Amen. And the last verse says, There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, come from the giants and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight and so we were in their sight if you could in your bibles just underline and we were like grasshoppers double underline in our own sight and so we were in their sight so what the spies did or 10 of the spies at least we're not going to lump joshua and caleb in there what they did was they went out and they saw how big the men in the land was. They saw how strenuous it may be to till the land. When they brought back the fruit, they said that this is the biggest fruit we've ever seen. When they went throughout the land, they looked at all of the land and they pictured themselves in it to see if they could actually live in it or dwell in it. And they said, this is too much for us. So they came back to Moses and they gave the people that report. And it's that report that most of the people believe because everybody can believe the negative more than the positive, especially if it's a culmination of people that are saying it. And you always have that one person that says, no, 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 we're good. We can do this. This is the men of Israel conforming to what they saw on the outside. But Joshua and Caleb had a different view. They were able to transform by the renewing of their minds because they took that word that God has given them and they were saying, no, we can do this. God said we can do this. And Carol read the scripture earlier. Uh, I was going to go into Joshua, but God told Joshua to be strong and of good courage. And Joshua was even showing that forth way before he even got into the position of leading Israel. But when we look at the last part of the scripture, it says, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. Does anybody know what a grasshopper is? Has anybody ever seen a grasshopper? A grasshopper is, is annoying. A grasshopper will make noise all night. A grasshopper is this little thing. But has anybody ever heard of locusts? 
What are locusts? Locusts are vicious. Locusts are something you don't want to mess with. Locusts are something that can cause a whole town or a whole city or a whole land to go into famine. Did you know that a locust is nothing? Locusts have, you know what a goose is, you know what geese are, right? A goose is that one animal. Geese are a flock of gooses. Gooses isn't a word, but you get what I'm saying. It's the same thing. A grasshopper is a locust. It's just that grasshoppers, a whole swarm of grasshoppers become locusts. And if Israel could have just transformed, or those ten men could have just transformed the renewing of their mind by listening to God and listening to what they were saying, yes, we are grasshoppers, but do you know how many of us it is, it is in this place? If we can go and take that land, we could be just like the locusts and come together, and we can take that land. But because they conformed and they saw each and individual one of them saying, compared to them, we are just grasshoppers and, and they are these big giants. But if they, if they only knew if they could just go in all at once and transform into locusts, they could have taken over. But because they didn't take the word of God and they didn't transform that word that was in them, they missed out on a whole blessing that God gave them. So we know the story. A generation had to die off before the next generation could go in. And Joshua actually led them into the promised land. And I'm going to be finished with this last part of the scripture. If we go back to Romans 12, just so you can see it. Amen. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So after we've done all this, being sanctified, we're being set aside, we were cleansed, and we were set aside to be viewed or become the vessel of God. God is saying, if you do this, then you can prove to the rest of the world that if you live and sanctification and holiness but I'm only going to do sanctification on today if you can be sanctified if you can show the world that there is something to this word of God that God is the one true God that God is who he says he is then that's what you're doing you're proving to the world and this is what that last part of the scripture means you're proving to the world that God's will is perfect that God's will is acceptable and that God's will is good amen Amen. And I said all of that to say, remember sanctification. Sanctification isn't something that we do on an outwards appearance. I can come up here with the suit on. I did come up here with the suit on. I can come up here with all the accolades and do all the pro everything that's in protocol. I can say my words right. I can, I can do everything that we're so used to doing in church. But all of that means nothing if on the inside I have the wrong heart. And that's the running theme of sanctification is being getting all of that out of you to be viewed or, or to be set aside to be viewed or used by God. Amen. 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 I pray y'all got something. I promise you we will be out of here by 12. But I think it's 1215. So I'm sorry. Uh, count it to my heart, not my mind. Um, at this time, I'm going to ask everybody to stand. Amen. We're just going to have a word of prayer. Amen. I thank everybody for coming out. Amen. On this daylight savings time. Hopefully no one comes in uh, at what? 1230 thinking it's 1130. <laughs>
Father, we thank you, Lord, for the word on today, God. We ask, Lord, that you allow us to apply it to our hearts and to our minds, God. Lord, we ask, Lord, that you renew our, our minds, God. Don't let us conform to this world, God, but renew our minds on sanctification. Lord, renew our minds on being holy, God. Renew our minds, Lord, to do exactly what it is that you have called us to do, God. Let us know, God, that it's not the outward appearance that we should be so focused on, God, but it's the inward man that we should be working on, God. Give us the right heart, God. Give us the right mind, God. Allow us to truly be sanctified in your house, God. And we ask that we can do this, Lord, to do that good and acceptable will. In Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like to partner with us or make a donation, please visit our site at www.go2hopehaven.org. Our mission statement is to reach, evangelize, accept, and love. Your contribution will be a blessing to many in our local community, nationally, and even internationally. Again, thank you for listening. Stay tuned for more next week.